this is the People School class for November 19, 2020. We are reading The Truth About Hungary by Herbert Aptiker. Every historian writes from an ideological perspective. Don't kid yourself. Whether they want to or not, they're influenced by that. Okay, why am I saying this? Because in the communist movement, there was a separation in 1956 at the 20th Party Congress. All the people who were at that Congress from foreign communist parties, they were shocked what they heard. And what it was, was a denunciation of Comrade Stalin by Comrade Khrushchev. This must have been done behind closed doors, but nobody knew about it, because the people that were in the audience, all the reportage after that, that this was a shock to them, that they didn't know that the speech was going to be given. Okay, why am I bringing this up? Because you have to look at when a history book is written, not only by the author, but the period of time it's written. In 1945, the Red Army comes into Eastern Europe, liberates it from Nazism. The people that were put into place in every local communist party, most of them were died in the world communists who went to the Soviet Union to escape fascism in their own countries, whether it was Germany, Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, even Yugoslavia, Bulgaria, all of them. These people were tried and true communists under the leadership of the only general secretary they knew, which was Joseph Stalin. In 53, Comrade Stalin passed away. There was a power struggle. I don't know how many people know about this. They were called the Troika, which is a Russian winter sled led by three horses. And it was called the Troika because there were three people leading the party in the Soviet Union. One of them was Khrushchev. Another one was Malenkov. And I forgot what the third one is. So from 53 to 56, it was led by Troika. At the end, I would say by 1955, 56, it was obvious who was going to lead the party. It was Khrushchev. So Khrushchev gives a speech in 56 in which he attacks Comrade Stalin. Meanwhile, in each of the Eastern European countries, the head of the party was the ally of Stalin. One by one, they had to be taken out not murdered or anything like that. They were taken out of power, and the allies of Khrushchev came in. That's what happened. Whether it's good or bad, that's the reality of what happened. Okay, in 56, we're going to go tonight into what happened there. That cannot be taken as separate from what happened in the power struggle inside the Soviet Union. We have to look at it as part of that. The reason why I said that, because the author of tonight's book, got his baptism after Stalin died under Troika. His name is Herbert Aptheka, and he was not N.O.T. anti-Stalin in the beginning because the party was not anti-Stalin, and he came out of the party in this country, the American party, and none of the parties were anti-Stalin until Khrushchev came out with his speech in 56. So therefore, understand that this is written through the eyes of someone who has gone through the changes in the leadership of the communist movement internationally, and it affected every party in the planet, every party. The book is written in 57. The analysis of the book 
is that the leadership of Hungary before 56 was partially to blame. Now let's look who they were. The chief one was Rakasi. Rakasi was put into position of authority with the recommendation of Comrade Stalin. So now you'll understand why a person would write a book in 57 where he's also going to now use that opportunity to criticize. Whether or not the criticism is valid is another subject. It could very well have been valid criticism of the previous regime. So I just want to give that preface that you understand that. Remember the famous quote by Comrade Marx, you have to be questioning everything, question everything, and look at where it's coming from. And that's it. I gave my presentation so you understand the book tonight has to be looked in a certain prism. All right. I am going to start at the bottom of page 15 on the file itself. That will be the second page of Chapter 2. Competent observers and historians are unanimous in noting the extreme chauvinism that characterized Hungarian politics and thought, especially from 1918 to 1945, which is after the war. Typical is the paragraph from John Gunther's well-known book, Inside Europe, which was published in 1936. This quote is from page 324. Quote, in Hungary is the strongest, the most pervasive nationalism in Europe. In the chauvinism sweepstakes, the Hungarians beat even the Poles, unquote. I'm skipping down one paragraph to page 16. As Hungary stands out as the most nationalistic and chauvinistic of nations in an environment of chauvinist neighbors, so is her system of land concentration prior to 1945 extraordinary in a region where such concentration was normally quite notable. In this connection, it is important to note that just as Hungarian foreign policy depended upon German support, so her system of abnormal land concentration required for its maintenance German support. The direction of Hungary's foreign policy and the semi-feudal structure of her social order were, in fact, as the Hungarian scholar G. Poloxi Horvath has written in the book In Darkest Hungary, which is published in London 1944, this is from page 7, quote, the direction of Hungary's foreign policy and the semi-feudal structure of her social order were indissolubly linked, for without the help of the Germans, it would have been impossible for Hungary's lords to maintain their anachronistic rule in modern times, unquote. By the same token, it was the crushing of the Germans and the Hungarian lords by the Red Army that made possible indeed, inevitable, the smashing of the Latifundia system and the land reform law of 1945. The special dimension of land concentration in Hungary finds unanimous agreement among all analysts. Thus, Oskar Jazi, a leading Hungarian scholar and a member after World War I of the cabinet of the First Republican government, stated, quote, there is no country in Europe with so unhealthy a land system. That was from Revolution and Counter-Revolution in Hungary, published 1924, page 190. Emil Lengel, in his study of Central Europe from the Danube, which is 1939 publication, page 225, declared that, quote, Today, Hungary is the classical land of large estates, unquote. Elizabeth Wiskman, a leading English authority, stated that after the First World War, quote, in Hungary, the distribution of land remained judged by 20th century criteria 
the most unjust in Central Europe, unquote. That was from uh, Central and Southeast Europe, the book published in 1950, page 98. And finally, Ilonia Polanyi's estimate may stand as an authoritative summarization of this feature of Hungarian development. Quote, Among East European countries, Hungary was the worst instance of the system of giant landed estates and their complement, a vast agricultural proletariat living below subsistence level. This state of affairs was preserved unimpaired up to 1945, or the end of the war. In pre-1945 Hungary, some 2,000 land magnates owned 50% of the arable acreage in the country, an additional 6% of the total, or some 1.2 million acres, was owned by the Roman Catholic Church, the largest single landowner in the nation. Think about that. Hungary had about 1.9 million landholding units, which meant that about one-tenth of 1% 1 of the landholding units possessed 56% of the land and 99.9% were required to share the remaining 44% of the soil. And think about that in our country today, we have a concentration of wealth similar to what was just noted, where one-tenth of 1%, in this country, I know that it owns uh, over 90% of the wealth in the country. And in Hungary, it was not to that extent, but still to the extent where the small, very small group of capitalists and aristocrats owned all the major centers of economic power. The result was that pre-1945 Hungary contained 500,000 landless peasant families, that is about 2 million agrarian peoples who owned no land whatsoever, and an additional 360,000 families who possessed what were called dwarf holdings, that is, such a small quantity of land that they were practically landless. I think we should stop and ask questions. With what's being described here, Erno Gero, one of the main people involved in the Hungarian counter-revolution on the Marxist-Leninist side of the government, during the war, during the liberation struggle, he worked with the peasants and to a smaller degree with the small shareholders party to get this land away from the small concentration of power and to actually pass through a land reform bill that gave some of the land to the peasantry, which was very progressive for the time because nothing like that had ever happened in Hungary before. I was wondering how fundamental was land to the economy of Hungary? Was this like pretty much the main source of capital in that country? And I imagine it was more agrarian. Hungary was the weakest link in the chain in Eastern Europe of capitalist countries. Germany had more capital and more industrialization. So did Czechoslovakia. And that's it for those, for those countries. The ones that had the least were Poland and Hungary. And that would explain a lot to me why the uprisings happened in those two countries. Uprisings happened in 53 in, in Poland, over agriculture, by the way. And it happened in Hungary, not only in 1919. Remember that, comrades. There was an uprising in 1919. They set up a short-lived Soviet republic, which Rakasi, by the way, was a member of that government. He was a cabinet member of that government. So they had very little industrialization. And land was 
the barometer to show the wealth of someone. I'd also like to quickly add Albania as well was extremely poor at that time in terms of their industrialization. Albania, Poland, and Hungary, those three were the least industrialized. Hungary had a small amount of industry, but it was just enough to where they could make guns and such, but that was about all that they had. Their industry was essentially only for making weaponry. They didn't have any sort of heavy industry for anything else. Simple question here. I want to know what is the Latifundia system? Latifundia is a state's manor, the manor system, where you had large manorial estates. That's all it is. With the involvement of the Catholic Church owning so much land, when Hitler and the German army came through Hungary, was that area protected with the Vatican cooperation, or did that spark in a conflict between Hitler and the Vatican? There was an agreement between Hitler and the Roman Catholic Church. Everybody should know that. Young people may not know it because they didn't study it. There's a famous movie put out in the early 60s called The Cardinal. I urge people to get it, to look at the DVD. It shows the connection between the Roman Catholic Church and the Nazi regime. Very, very close. Not the local people, but Rome itself. When they had the Anschluss, which was the coming together, the uniting of Austria and Germany that Hitler was pushing, when they had that, the Roman Catholic churches throughout Austria, their bells were ringing in jubilation. They were excited and they were happy. They were supporting it. So, yes, there was an agreement, and not just a secret agreement, an open agreement between Rome and Berlin. Did the land system directly lead to the national chauvinism in the superstructure, or were there other reasons? Yes, it did. But one of the main things with the nationalism in Hungary came from Hungary's former position in Europe. Hungary, at one point in time, had been the head of the Holy Roman Empire, and any country that had ever been the head of the Holy Roman Empire had always wanted to return to that. This was the case to some degree in Germany as well. When Horthy took over, did he get support from like the actual Wehrmacht? Yeah, of course he did. Hungary was the only country, listen to this, the only country in Europe where there was no partisan movement. I just found that out tonight by reading this book. Could you imagine a country in Europe that did not have a partisan movement fighting against occupation or fighting against the ideology of fascism? Every single country, Spain, Italy, France, Yugoslavia, Poland, Russia, Bulgaria, they all had partisan movements. Only Hungary didn't have it. That tells you something. That tells you something really quick. So Horthy had a political party called the Iron Cross. And you noticed something. The swastika was a cross that was twisted, that seemed to take the Christian essence of Christianity, which is the cross, and they twisted it in Germany, and they did the same thing. 
they, they made it thicker, so it was called the Iron Cross. That was the name of Horthy's party. In fact, the Hungarians invaded, along with Germany, in 1941, the Soviet Union. That shows you where they were. They hated the Slavs. And that doesn't mean every single person, because they did have a communist party that was small. They were ruling the country in 1919 for a few months. So now I'm going to be starting right at the very bottom of page 31. So fundamental a part of the status quo in Hungary was anti-Semitism that to question it or to associate it in real fraternity with Jews was a hallmark of subversion. Very much as in most of the United States, such behavior from whites with blacks is similarly regarded. Hence, it was only among the members of the extreme left and, in the first place, among the outlawed communists that Jews found a policy of equality. Further, so intolerable were conditions in general in Hungary, and doubly so for a Jew, that radical and communist movements naturally attracted as they welcomed Jewish adherents. It is to the indelible honor of Hungarian Jewry that a notable number contributed heroically to the struggle against reaction and fascism. At the same time, it is an indubitable fact that this served as the grain of truth, quote-unquote, making more convincing to the deeply anti-Semitic masses than Nazi-like hoax labeling communism a Jewish plot, quote-unquote. Now I'm going to be continuing, and this goes into what the comrade asked about the Catholic Church and the relationship. The power of the Roman Catholic Church in Hungary was probably greater than anywhere else in Eastern Europe, including Poland and Romania. The establishment of the Hungarian nation was organically connected almost a thousand years ago with the acceptance of Catholicism. The Catholic Church was, of course, the established one. Others might or might not be tolerated, quote-unquote. There was, however, one truly Hungarian church, and it was the Roman Catholic Church, under Horthy, there prevailed an agreement with the Pope identical with that existing still between Franco and the Vatican. Up to 1948, in Hungary, all schools and most institutions of higher learning were church schools. The Roman Catholic Church controlled about 65% of them. This control included physical ownership of the lands and plants, absolute authority over textbooks, the appointing, paying, and firing of all teachers and administrators, and the untrammeled control over the curriculum. In 1945, the Roman Catholic Church was, next to Prince Easterhazy, the largest landowner in Hungary, about 1.2 million acres, holding actually one-seventeenth of all the land. The church was an employer of agricultural labor in 500 out of Hungary's 3,000 villages. The cardinal himself owned scores of thousands of acres. The truth is that the Roman Catholic Church in Hungary, as an institution, was an integral part of the ruling class in property, in politics, and in ideology. It was identical with and a bulwark of the clerico-feudalist fascist regimes which tormented Hungary for a thousand years. From what has been written on this point, one would expect that Nazism would attract considerable support in Hungary. The expectation accords with reality. Hungary's foreign policy of irredentism to be realized at the expense of Romania, Yugoslavia, and Czechoslovakia in particular fell right into line with Hitler's plans for Central and Eastern Europe. 
Hungary's domestic policy, saturated with anti-Semitism and anti-communism, and directed towards the efficient maintenance of a brutal, feudalist, capitalist system of exploitation, coincided perfectly with the ideas and practices of Hitler's Germany. There was some feeling among the landed aristocracy that the Nazis were rather vulgar upstarts. There also was some opposition from old-hand, horthy fascists to the challenge for power and loot represented by the new Nazi Aerocross party. But both these objections were tactical and adjustments could easily be and were being made. Furthermore, the strength of Hitler Germany was mounting. It was meeting encouragement rather than real resistance from the West. And in the East stood the Soviet Union, embodiment of everything basically challenging, Horthyism and Hitlerism. All writers agree that during World War II in Hungary, there was a, quote, apathy of the people as evidenced in the infrequency of acts of sabotage and the absence of an active underground movement, such as developed in other Nazi-ridden countries. Cited work page 27. Indeed, one of the points to be noted is that Hitler did not feel it necessary to fully occupy Hungary until March 1944. It's about a year before the war ends, four or five years after Hitler and Germans had invaded Poland. During the prior war years, while it is true that certain Nazi officials and specialists, quote-unquote, were in direct supervision of key aspects of Hungarian activity, it is also true that Hitler felt, correctly so, that his best ally could be allowed to run things more nearly on his own than any of his other allies, quote-unquote. An outstanding personality in this new government was the almost legendary figure of the communist leader, Matthias Rakosi, a member of the Belakun government, a man who had endured over 16 years imprisonment and torture under Horthy, and who had been living in exile in the Soviet Union for several years. When he returned, there were probably still alive 10,000 Hungarians in the country who had held firm in their Communist Party beliefs and affiliations. The other parties had functioned legally under Horthy, and while some of their members, especially among the Social Democrats, had suffered persecution, none had endured anything like the repression and physical annihilation which had hounded the Communists. On the other hand, none had so unquestioned a title to anti-fascism, and it was clear that this was to be a minimum requirement for all allowed to participate in the new Hungary. And I'm going to end on a passage on page 27. John Gunther, who Angelo can elaborate on after I read this, writing in 1936, said that Horthy's regime was, quote, the worst dictatorship in Europe, and that, quote, the most unpleasant thing about Horthy is his white terror history. This would appear to be a combination of superlatives that exhausts the English language, during that terror, he adds, quote, at least several thousand innocent Jews and communists were tortured and murdered. Jazi refers to the, quote, hanging mania, unquote, which beset the Horthy government and calls the white terror one of the darkest pages in Hungarian history, unquote. And with that, the reading has been completed. We gave you the background tonight of how Hungary was the hungry that the Red Army came into, no paradise of democracy. In fact, the opposite. 
the hangings that were done under the Horthy fascist government. The first thing they did in the counter-revolution, in the first days, was to use the street post to hang human beings who are of Jewish background and members of the government and the party. In other words, it was the same people, the same mentality. These were not Democrats the way we were presented in our textbooks when I was growing up about Hungary. And they're still given the lie. If you look at any history channel, they go out of their way to lie. And it's obvious why they go out of their way. Because the government in Hungary, for the first time, was representing working people, not the wealthy, the aristocracy who owned it, all the land of the states. And this country can't take that. Remember, we cannot take that here because we represent the wealthy in this country. We, I mean this country's government. And that's why they can't take that. So the history of what happened in 56 is going to be one lie after another. Now, I'm going to end it with one thing. The war ends in 45. All the people that were fascists, none of them left Hungary. They stayed. Majority of the people, the vast majority, who supported Horthy stayed in Hungary. Where do you think they did? They stayed quiet like roaches in the daytime. They hide behind the woodwork. When the lights go out, what happens? The roaches come out. The same analogy. When things were dark and the country was starting to fall apart, the roaches came out. The white terror, the Horthy people. We know them as the Horthy people, together with Cardinal Mazenti, remember that name, who was the head of the church that lost all their power, and they lost all their land, they lost all their money. These are the people that led the counter-revolution. And I'll leave it at that. Romania and Bulgaria actually had defected to the Red Army at this point. They realized the Nazis were slaughtering Romani, they were doing a lot of evil stuff that affected the Red Army as soon as they could, as soon as it was safe to do so. So in Hungary, an elite SS panzer unit actually went into Budapest and kicked down the doors of officials and kidnapped their wives and their children and brought them west in order to force Hungary to keep fighting because that's the only way that they could. We obviously talked a lot about how instrumental the Catholic Church was in allowing the rise of fascism in Hungary. I was just wondering if there were similar parallels in other countries around the same time, like in Germany, Italy, etc. Depend on the country where the church was very strong. The government of Poland that was attacked by Germany was not a democratic government. I want to shock everybody. It was led by someone named General Pilsudski. General Pilsudski, P like in Peter, I-L-S-U-L-S-K-I. He was a native fascist, a Polish fascist, who was a nationalist. So he was anti-German, but pro-fascist. Anti-Semitic to the core, just the way fascism always is. And another case where the church was very powerful and supported Pusutsky government. In Germany, the church was so pro-Nazi 
that the gentleman in Rome, Pope Pius XII, you should write down notes, comrades. Pope Pius XII was known in history as the fascist pope. That's the way bourgeois history refers to him. Bourgeois history. As the fascist pope. And he was. He was the one who blind eye to the concentration camps. Blind eye to persecution of trade unionists. Blind eye to when they killed disabled people in Germany and other fascist countries. It's different today, comrades. We cannot say it's the same. The leadership, like every organization, it's the leadership that counts. And if the leadership is progressive, the organization is forced to be progressive. But as soon as that leader goes, we don't know what could happen. We as communists have seen that in our own party. When the leader goes and another leader comes in, they take it in the wrong direction. And that's another problem with it for another day, another question. We're talking about 10 years or so, 45 to 56. Not only are all the fascists and the Horthyites still in Hungary, but they're also roughly of the same age. You know, they're still young. They're still by far the majority. Ten years is not nearly enough time to try to get rid of 20 or so, if we're being generous, years of fascist education in the fascist system. We have to kind of understand that revolutions take a really long time to mature and to develop out, for the generations to feel confident in their system and to believe in it fully. These are still people who were brought up in a very different system. Obviously, people who killed people, they suffered capital punishment, a lot of them. But people who were just protesting and such, they got educated. You know, some of them went to re-education camps. Some of them just got off scot-free. And a lot of them would go on to become communists. Some of them would go on to just become regular citizens. So you're right. You know, there are people who may have believed these things at the time. There are people who can be wrong today and right tomorrow. I actually had a really similar observation on a question. It seems like nations like Hungary and Poland have always had that strong, rightist, national chauvinism it doesn't seem to have really gone away, but to have like bubbled under the surface, even under the Soviet Union. It's like a, a resurfacing of this national chauvinism, or was one of the failures of those Eastern Bloc countries their inability to educate the masses and to nip that in the bud when they had the chance? It, ten years is nothing. You cannot do, change a generation. A generation lasts about 20 years. And remember... I know this a fact for the Soviet Union when I was living there. The society was progressive, but the old-timers who believed in the old faith, they called it old believers in Russia, they were at home, the grandparents, and they were very close bringing up the children, the new generation. And they told their grandchildren. They perpetuated the myths of anti-Semitism and anti-communism and the belief in a supernatural being. I'm not saying that that is a myth, but what I'm saying is that in Russia, it was a myth before 1917. And they were influential, the old-timers, in educating their children at home. Remember that. Describe briefly why the 1919 Hungarian Revolution failed. Very briefly. I know it's a complicated topic. It wasn't the right time for the revolution. It was just like the Spartacus Uprising. 
it wasn't the right time. And they were surrounded by German forces. They were surrounded by English forces, French forces. There was no way for a revolution to survive. It wasn't much better off than the communards were. Cardinal Ratzinger, who was the previous pope, had been a member of Hitler's youth. And that's not very well known. The church has done a pretty good job of covering that up, but the previous pope was a member of Hitler's youth. After Pope Pius died, anybody in the Catholic faith who had been involved in the Nazi regime was actually supposed to have been excommunicated. And they, for some reason, excluded members of the Hitler youth. If there is any denomination that is very incomprehensible and whose practices is very antithetical to the teachings of Christianity and Christian ethics, and a church in the name of Christianity that supports fascism, I mean, that organization is a criminal organization to the way I understand it. So in any socialist or communist revolution, how come the party cannot evaluate that denomination as a criminal organization and judges accordingly? I went to Catholic school for eight years. I do believe that not necessarily the Christian faith itself, but the Catholic Church as an organization, I do believe the party should label as a criminal organization. What was true yesterday may not be true today. That's what we call dialectics. And we are not absolutists. We're dialectical thinking people. And the reality of the church today, for example, their position on a lot of things is very different than their position from 1600s through the medieval period when people were burned as witches, all the way up to the period of what we're talking about. It depends on where individuals are now and the leadership now. I think the leadership now is a progressive leadership, and if it's going in, the, in a progressive direction, does it make sense for us to bring up what they did 300 years ago or 50 years ago? Or is it our job as communists to encourage them to continue on a progressive, non-reactionary position? The liberation theology, which is basically Roman Catholic, is a much more progressive movement in Latin America than the born-again Christians who are actually very reactionary. So I think we should look at things dialectically, the way we do with leaders in our party. At one point, they played a positive role. Another point, they played a negative role. And we condemn them for their negative role. I tend to agree that the Catholic Church should be labeled a fascist organization because right now there's a huge power struggle in the church. The current pope is getting a lot of pushback within the church and from his followers. If you go on any right-wing forum, American Catholics do not like the progressive direction he is going in. There's a lot of pushback. And I'm also reminded by like what's going on in Poland right now. And Poland's very Catholic, and they have a fascist movement right now. And they were firebombing woman activist houses, trying to set them on fire, like as recently as last week. And they're marching around with banners that say, all lives matter. So they're obviously 
being influenced by the Trumpist movement here in America. The current pope is not necessarily representative of the church as a whole, even though he's supposed to be. If the church could actually go in the direction that he's trying to push it, it could actually be a more progressive organization. God knows he's trying. The object of these classes is to, you come away from them, you learn something you didn't know before. And it works from the youngest of us to the oldest. I may be the oldest one here tonight, um, 73. And I've learned a lot, which I didn't know, about Hungary. The other thing I want to urge people is to get DVDs of films that are made by mass media that have some amount of truth in them and some amount of lies. And I told you about the movie The Cardinal, which deals with the issue of abortion, by the way. And it goes through the whole period of Germany, the Nazis, the role of the church, and the role in Austria. So I urge you to get that for tonight's class. Thank you all. Good night.